Our topic tonight is a very interesting one. What did Jesus really teach and what does that mean to us? It's a it's an obviously a gigantic topic that we can only just touch on a little bit, so I'll just sort of talk about it from various angles and maybe I'll try to leave time tonight to ask leave for leave space for a few questions if you like. Um as many of you know, because I've mentioned it, I grew, grew up in a Jewish household in a Christian country, so it, we were always a minority and Christianity was always part of life all around me. I fortunately did not grow up in any way that prejudiced me against against Christ. Some Jews grew up in a very, um, either they've been subject to anti-Semitism or they've been uh, persecuted in some way by the Christian churches and therefore they feel very defensive or else loyalty um, in Judaism it's there's a very there's a peculiarity to Judaism that you can be just about anything but a Christian and still be a Jew you can be a Hindu you can be a Buddhist you can be a yogi you can be a lot of other things but if you actually begin to believe in Jesus then you've crossed the line in terms of being Jewish so it's a it's a strange sort of prejudice I basically grew up with a blank slate so I was neither for or against him. It was just he was there. But I had absorbed, as everyone absorbs, um, I mean, even here, where you all, many of you I know, went to convent schools or were subjected in one way or another to a churchianity in one form or another, uh, which may or may not have made you very cheerful toward Jesus. You might have gotten a little prejudiced against him too. Um, in my early years at Ananda, SRF still um, had possession of all of Master's writings and a great deal of it they had not yet published. So Master had written a commentary on the New Testament and on the teachings of Jesus, but it was not available in the form that it was printed, published finally well into the 90s. So I'm talking in the 70s, so this is like 25 years earlier. But Master had written it, the commentary, on a sort of... um, quick basis as articles which were published in the Self-Realization Fellowship magazine. And so the articles were published over the course of many years. So the whole commentary in a, in a less edited form was available. Shivani, who was a very industrious Ananda person um, and not one to be held back by small obstacles, <laughs> determined that uh, we should all have a copy of both the commentary on the Bible and the commentary on the Bhagavad Gita and the mere fact that they were out of print and owned by somebody else should not be an issue. So she managed by sheer magnetism to find an entire set of SRF magazines covering all the years in which Master was alive and writing these articles. She obtained the magazine, she bought a copy machine, she started printing them and, uh, and selling them, not for profit but just for cost. And so pretty soon we had these uh, Xerox copies of all these magazine articles in these spiral-bound volumes that we could all study these. So this was very radical. Uh, Now, because of various litigations and so on like that, Ananda itself publishes a whole slew of a whole line of master's teachings. Swamiji has published three full books uh, based on it. But then, just to get... Even the littlest piece of anything was a really big deal. So I remember that I was in seclusion and uh, in my little trailer living at Ananda Village. 
and I had those magazines and I started reading. And I started reading such a radical, radically different definition of who Jesus was and what his teachings were from the little bit that I had absorbed. And it was was multidimensional, my response to it. One of them was, how many other untrue things have been taught to me that I have just absorbed as true, and, and when will I ever know what the actual reality of these things are? It made me... In a, in a sense, very nervous about everything that I'd ever learned. This is just about how myth becomes teaching. When I was in the, probably, I think it was the fifth grade, probably 10 or 11, whatever you are in the fifth grade. And my teacher was talking about the, the necessary elements for life to be sustained. Now, I am such a zero scientist, I really have very little comprehension even of what she was talking about. But this was the exchange that I remember. She said, in order for life to be sustained, you need whatever it is, water, air, whatever she was telling me in fifth grade science. And, be, and then she announced, because these conditions only exist on Earth, therefore there is no life on any other planet, which there was a lot of what I think were non-sequiturs in that sort of thing that she presented. So I, as, a, as one never to take anybody's word for anything, even at that age, <laughs> I said, couldn't there be a form of life that was adapted to other conditions? I mean, like, how obvious is that question? And my fifth grade teacher said, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought to myself, what am I doing here? You know, like, what is this? How could this possibly be true? So there I am, you know, now I'm 25 or so, and I'm reading about the life of Christ from just a totally other perspective. Unfortunately, as I said, I had no prejudice, and I had absolute faith in Master. Swamiji said when he became a disciple of Master, he was 22 years old, and he was a typical American, and you all have read the story in, in the end of his life. It was the only story he told. He just told it over and over. His entire life, Swamiji's life, became Guru Bhakti at the end, period, especially in India. It's just no matter what subject he was supposed to talk about, he would tell us about how he found Master and what it was like to meet him. And then he would cry, and then he would try to master himself and tell us again. I mean, years earlier he used to talk about other things, but at the end he never talked about anything else. It just all his entire spiritual life came down to that. But uh, he said when he was 22 and he went to Master, he read Autobiography of a Yogi. And as uh, he said in a very sweet comment once, I always felt from childhood that I lived in a world of my own that no one else shared. But when I read Autobiography of a Yogi, I realized that Master and I lived in the same world, which was an extremely poignant way to describe it. So Swamiji left everything, went across the United States, went to Master, said, I want to be your disciple. But he had no context except Autobiography of a Yogi. He'd never heard of any of these things until then, because it was 1948 in America. It was just unknown. He said he was just, he was so, um, he was in such a different world, and then he moved into the ashram, and that was that. He said sometimes he would just almost feel faint with all that he was trying to take in. And he was willing to believe anything that Master said. And the way he described it was, I accepted, I 
I followed Master unhesitatingly, but not unquestioningly. Meaning he knew it was true, but then he had to understand why it was true. So when I was receiving these teachings of Jesus, I knew they were true. But I didn't always understand why or how it all fit together. And one of the most remarkable things that Master just, well, there's several, but one of them that is just so definite is in the New Testament, you have this story. You have the story of Jesus' miraculous birth. You have the story of the star over the manger. You have the three wise men coming to pay homage to him. You have this, the last story that's in the Bible is that when it came time for the great festival of the Passover, which was a big festival in the Jewish tradition because the Jewish people actually originated from this Passover service. They were an enslaved people to Egypt, and then Moses came. He, Moses was the avatar, and he was an avatar, and he gathered the Jewish people, and he was able to extricate them from their slavery to the Pharaoh. And the, the Egyptian emperor wouldn't release his people. And so that uh, Moses called down curses upon um, Egypt, saying that, you know, God wants these people to be freed. I mean, these are very dramatic stories. And Pharaoh refused to let them go. And Moses called down curses. And he called down um, frogs and plagues and various things. And still, the Pharaoh would not let these people go. And he was, the emperor was, the Pharaoh was standing against the will of God. And Moses was an avatar, and he was determined that the will of God would be seen. I mean, when you think of these as real events, they become really magnificent in your mind. So then Pharaoh said, if you don't, I mean, Moses said, that if you don't let my people go, the angel of death is going to visit every Egyptian home and take the firstborn son. Now that is quite a curse. And then the Jewish people, in order to distinguish their homes from the homes of the Egyptians, they mark their doorways with blood. And so Passover was the angel of death passed over the houses of the Jews and took the firstborn son from every house of the Egyptian, including the emperor's son, the Pharaoh's son. And so then he said, you know, get these cursed people out of my land. And so hastily they all gathered up and went. And they, because they didn't have time to bake bread for the journey, they had to make unleavened bread. No, I mean, we all in India, we all eat unleavened bread. We make chapatis right then and we eat them. But the, the Jews had always eaten leavened bread, but they made uh, unleavened bread, which was matzah, which is just like a cracker. And so the matzah became integral to the Passover service because it was when they had to flee while the, well, the Pharaoh still was letting them go. And then they start leaving, but this is a whole economy that's based on slavery. And so all these slaves are really what sustain the kingdom. And so Pharaoh was so dark in his mind that after they began to leave, he changes his mind. And he goes to pursue them, and he pursues them to the edge of the Red Sea. And then Moses parts the Red Sea, the, the, the ocean parts, the Jews escape across the sea, then Pharaoh's army rushes into the opening. 
But as soon as the Jews reach the other side, the waters close over and the, all, the, all of his soldiers are killed. Whoa, what a story. Now, did it happen exactly like that? Who knows? But something extraordinary happened. So ever after, in the Jewish tradition, and it's all through the life of Jesus, the Passover is the big service because that was that is, I mean, now as we understand Sanat and Dharma, that was the celebration of the avatar, who was Moses, who actually began the Jewish people. And Moses was a true avatar. Master Master affirmed that. There's you know, it's so long ago and there's so many confusions laid over it. But Judaism was a true religion, was truly Sanat and Dharma. Some some faiths are not started by avatars. They're just sort of started by perhaps enlightened people, perhaps semi-enlightened people, whatever it might be. But the true religions are the, revel- the, re- the full revelation from the divine. And in the East, in, in uh, India, where the Bhagavad Gita exists, and we have Krishna saying, whenever virtue declines and vice predominates, I, the infinite spirit, take human form in order to restore righteousness and, and wisdom and dharma. So we have, and I count myself as we now, we have this understanding of this constant return because the revelation is full, but over time, less enlightened minds begin to interpret and they often say, well, this is what it really means, and they didn't really know what it meant, and this is what it really means. But what it is, is this is what I think it means. Then usually power and money and, and human ego get involved, and pretty soon, from spirituality, you get religion. <laughs> and this is what Master made this distinction between Christianity and churchianity. But it's the cycle that runs over and over again. And so something is lost. And the avatar is still true. And therefore, those who can commune directly can receive total truth and enlightenment and liberation from it. But there becomes a whole body of, of dogma, generally speaking, that usually bears little resemblance to the original. And then the new avatar comes. So Moses was a true avatar. He took them out of slavery and then molded them into a people because they didn't know how to be a people because they had only been enslaved. But there must have been, you know, true and deep longing among those people for for uh, the experience of God. These are all mysteries that we can't exactly understand. Moses got the 10 commandments. And those were the rules for the Jewish people. How, how can we be a people? In, it's interesting, just as a little parallel that helped me understand this. In American history, the black people who were brought over from Africa as slaves lived as slaves and did not have a coherent culture or way to be. Um, and then they were liberated from physical slavery about 1860, 1870, at the end of the American Civil War. And there was not an avatar, but a very great saint named George Washington Carver, who was a black man, who was born right at the time. He was a baby when the slaves were freed. So he he was a young man. And there was a couple of other very saintly, very enlightened men, a few of them. And basically, they began to teach the black people how to be a people, 
to educate them how to take care of themselves. And it was a much smaller version of what happened to the Jews, but it helped me to understand sort of how it works. So the Jews then were there, and they had the flowering of their time, and they were able to come into the land of Israel or whatever else had happened, and there they were. But over time, whatever the true influence of Moses was began to wane. And what specifically happened to the, to the Jewish people during that period of time is that a powerful priesthood developed. You know, and this is what happens. People, individual souls, either originally of goodwill or people just seeking power and position. You know, these things all get very complicated. So gradually they're developed primarily to very strong factions of priests and the Jewish people also became very wealthy and they built this huge temple in Jerusalem. This is the great, now this is the irony of it. You see, the Jewish people see this as the apex of their civilization. The apex of their civilization was when they had this giant temple in Jerusalem and of course nobody knows for sure what it looked like. When I was in Israel recently, there's this place where there's this model of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. And it's, you know, it, they, they sort of took whatever historical and archaeological things they have, and up the top of the hill is the biggest, most sort of, I just, I can just use another word, enormous, the biggest, enormous, most huge edifice, which is the temple. And worldly minds think the bigger it is, the more important it is. So you have this model of this place, and supposedly it was filled with, you know, costly ornaments and so on. And in Jerusalem, somebody, I, I believe it's actually real gold. Someone has built a, the menorah is the seven candle, candelabra, and it's a symbol of Judaism. And there's this place in Jerusalem where there is this gold-plated huge menorah. It's about five feet you know, six feet like this. So it's this huge gold candelabra. And it's supposed to be a replica of, of one of many things that was in this wonderful temple as a sign of how great the Jewish religion is. Now my mind says, oh my gosh, <laughs> you know, like so much wealth, so much materiality, so much worldly power. The first time I went to the Vatican in Rome, you know, the Vatican is real big, <laughs> and it's real stony, and it's just filled. You just walk down one hall, and there's, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, probably millions of dollars worth of treasures. They have all these little little uh, display cases. You know, every king in the world has given the Pope a present, hoping to win him. So you just see, you know, art treasure after art treasure, some of which are beautiful, some of which are merely garish, but you know, there's just, but still, you're just, you're just buried in, in money and the power that money gives. And, you know, it's just like, it's completely opposite from what real spirituality is. So it's a paradox. And when we all, for those of you who are coming to Israel in January, our guide, who's a very nice man, is a, a modern Orthodox Jew. And he's very convinced that that period of time was the apex of Judaism, and I hope we all get along. <laughs> I'm, I'm just a little worried. But um, 
So there it is. So so this is the context. So there's these two kinds of priests, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, which are all described in the Bible. And it's a little unclear to me who is who. I've sort of tried to straighten it out. But there's these two powerful groups. And they even have archaeologically, um, they know where the priests lived, and that's where the biggest, nicest houses were. And the priests have gradually taken, because Judaism started with, with law, with Mosaic law, so by the time of Jesus, Judaism is all about the law. And it's still all about the law. Now you study Judaism by studying the laws of Moses and the commentaries on the laws of Moses and the commentaries on the commentaries on the commentaries on the commentaries. And you get together and you, you discuss and you argue what the law is. And then you get it exactly down to what it's supposed to be. And then you follow it. I mean, it's... It's not bad. It's not a terrible way to be. It's better than having no rules at all. It's better than many other things. But at the time that Jesus was born, the priests had gotten themselves in charge of the law. And Judaism was pretty much defined according to whether you followed all these laws. And there was, you know, lots of money involved in various ways. And the priests had set it up that you have to make these offerings and... You have to do everything in a certain way, and they're the ones who decide the whole story. And so the whole concept of God had become a judge because the principle is law, and law is enforced by the judge. So you have God there, and it's a very masculine image. This is not about men and women. This is about masculine energy versus feminine energy. Masculine energy... Is, is a very powerful and positive energy because it's wisdom-oriented. It's, it's, it's a straight, direct spine. It holds up what the principles are, and then it, it inspires us to meet them. So there's nothing inherently wrong with the masculine concept, but both masculine and feminine taken to extremes uh, become unbalanced. It's as simple as that. You need both sides of the coin. So, so religion had become very, very masculine, and it lacked, it lacked the softening force of the feminine. You did what God wanted you to do, and if you didn't, you were pretty darn in trouble. And the priests were always there to make sure that you knew which side you were on. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are in charge of the temple. And as far as most people are concerned, this is Judaism. Just as the Catholic Church claims that they take their authority directly from Jesus who gave it to Peter in an unbroken line of succession and they're just absolutely convinced. The fact that at various times there was more than one pope, that there were you know breaks in the succession, that the way they interpret the Bible, they interpreted it long after, all these different things, they just kind of push all that aside. But that's the belief. So to most people, that power of the temple was Judaism. But there were true um, disciples of Moses, you would probably be the way to call them, people who had, who in their own hearts followed that teaching but followed it very differently. Just like in, in my life now, I, uh, this was just a small thing, but we, before we had a temple in Palo Alto that was big enough for us to hold certain events in, when we, on certain occasions like, to celebrate Master's birthday or something, we would rent other places nearby. 
And on one occasion, we rented a, a Christian church that had a very nice place that we could use. And I went back the next year to rent the church from the, from the pastor there. And he had apparently gotten some complaints about whatever we had done. Greatly exaggerated, but nonetheless, he got complaints. And so we had a little discussion about who we actually were and what we were doing. And I told him that, you know, we, that we, were, we followed Paramhansa Yogananda, and he taught from both the Bhagavad Gita and the, and the Bible and the New Testament. The pastor says to me, he didn't call himself a Christian, did he? <laughs> and I said, he most certainly did. I said, but he took it directly from Jesus, not from the churches. <laughs> Suffice to say, we were never able to rent that church again. <laughs> Although that pastor was eventually fired for being too dogmatic for his congregation. But yes, of course he called himself uh, a Christian. He had, and had absolutely every right to do so. Who do you think you are? So there was simultaneously in Judaism, when all this corrupt priesthood power and money and excessive legalism, which is, was taking the heart out of everything, was growing up on this one side, there was a whole other uh, dimension of Judaism where, where you would have to say true Sanat and Dharma through Moses was being kept alive. And that was the Essene community. And the Essene community was secret. Um, and there's lots of, you know, people have speculated, people have written all kinds of books, and there's channeled writings and past life regression writings and historical writings, lots of different things, and true writings. Um, some, much of what is known, <laughs> weirdly enough, you know, is from real documents that have been preserved, many of which are in the basement of the Vatican. <laughs> and, you know, one uh, source that I I believe is true is a a man who actually has a very interesting spiritual history of his own, but having been, he was an American, then he was a Hindu Swami for a while, and now he has sort of his own denomination of Christianity. But I, I know him, and he was a friend of Swamiji's, and he's true. He's done a great deal of research. And all of this, I, I'm going to assert, is valid without being able myself to quote sources. But there was a whole other uh, underground system of, Chris, of Judaism, which was the Essene community, the Essenes look a lot like Ananda. <laughs> they look a lot like us. The, um, some sources, and even uh, when we go to Israel, there's, when you go out to Qumran, where the, there was an Essene community, there's a little film all about who they were. It's not, it doesn't quite ring true. And they tried to say that the Essenes were completely a monastic community, that they were a celibate community. But there's, there's a few things that just completely contradict that, which for some reason the archaeologists just keep putting aside because there were lots of rules for family life in the Essene community and there was evidence of children and women there. But nonetheless, they just want it to be what they want it to be, so you just let it go. But according to the tradition that I think is true, there was this whole underground community and they were very attuned, they were directly attuned and they followed, well, they followed Sanatana Dharma. We don't know details about it. And it is believed, and I think it was true, that it was to the Essene community that Jesus was born. And that they knew that the avatar was coming. And there was this whole uh, reality that was developed that was very, very different from this. 
uh, from the, 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 this one. And Jesus was born because of the sincere call of the Jewish people. When enough people call sincerely enough, a ray of divine grace is drawn into this world. So Jesus was expected. Jesus had a context. And there are many, there is much evidence that he was not an ignorant, poor carpenter, that he, he was born into a very refined society. Um, that, I always forget the man's name. It's Joseph of Arimathea was one of, historically, one of the wealthiest, uh, one of the wealthiest people of the time who actually traveled around, um, around the world, had, had ships and traveled around the world and was a trader. And he was very, he was, he was like Jesus' mentor and sponsor. I mean, because it makes, just makes much more sense. Sometimes an avatar is born into very humble circumstances. Ramakrishna is an example. Anandamoy Ma is another example where they, do, they have a certain reality. But the picture that's created of Jesus is not necessarily the true one. That's incidental to it. But the point was, he was expected, he was trained for what he was doing, he was recognized from the beginning from who he was, and he was not isolated and ignorant. He didn't just accidentally become this. Now, Master, the other thing that Master said, I mean, I haven't even said the first one, but one thing that Master said, going back to the birth of the life of Jesus, was that after Jesus was born, he was visited. Well, first they 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 speak of the star, the birth the birth story of Jesus has the star of Bethlehem, which was was over the stable, the the cave where Jesus was born, and the three wise men came from the east, and they followed the star. Well, Master said this is clearly allegorical, and this is the star. The spiritual eye is the star of Christ consciousness. And all of that was written in for those who have ears to hear, so that the, the story can be written in a certain way. Because at the time of Jesus, it was Kali Yuga de- descending. It was Kali Yuga, and it was going down. Now, we have to understand that the, the spiritual condition of the planet does not define the spiritual condition of every person who lives on the planet. Because here we have a great avatar being born in Kali Yuga, descending, bringing with him all his enlightened disciples. Because there's still all these different dramas acting out at the same time. I was in here talking uh, two days ago about the fact that Kali Yuga descending has certain rules to it. And Kali Yuga ascending, Dwapara ascending, it defines how you live but it doesn't define your potential. So, um, just let me just find my, my, my point here. Oh, yes. So, Master, in, in the New Testament, it says that these three wise men came from India to pay homage to the baby Jesus. And Swami tells us that when he was with Master at his desert retreat and Master's dictating a new set of SRF lessons, he says, the three wise men who came from the East were Babaji, Lahiri Mahashaya, and Sri Yukteswar. This is one of the many things Swami said where he just, like, he just didn't know what to to think about that because nothing in Christian tradition tells you, one, who they were, but for Master to just announce that, you know, our line of gurus those are the three wise men who came. 
Well, Swami said the obvious question was, who was in the manger, you know? And the, and the question is where it was master. And this is one among many reasons, but much more profound than just sentimental, that Swami came to the conclusion that Jesus, that, was, that master had incarnated as Jesus, because there it is, the same line of gurus. Swami came to that feeling for many reasons, and his conviction was the strongest, he said, after Swami said, after he wrote Revelations of Christ. Because Swamiji said the more he immersed himself, and this you, one just has to take Swami's word, the more he immersed himself in the consciousness of Jesus, the more it felt to him to be exactly the same consciousness as Master. And so Swami just, said, by the end of his life, said, I believe that's who it was. This, these three wise men, and did he... You know, then people ask practical questions. Well, if Babaji didn't have a body, did he have a body, you know, at that point? And if Babaji was Krishna, did he come as Krishna or did he come as Babaji? You know, and then Swami uh, talking about it was, did they, was it an astral visitation? Did they come in physical form? You know, you, you, none of these questions can be answered. The only emphatic statement is masters. And so... That, that is given at that point. And so all of a sudden you realize that, first of all, what is East and what is West? You know, what is Christianity, what is Hinduism, Sanatana Dharma, the Himalayan masters? You know, Yogananda just kind of took it all and put it in a stew pot or in a blender and just blended it all up. This is me in my trailer, just not knowing, my little trailer at Ayodhya in seclusion, just not knowing what to think about, you know, anything of this, quite apart from Judaism's rejection of Jesus altogether. You're just kind of going in circles. Your mind is blown. That's exactly what happens. So then there's, in the New Testament, we, we learn about Jesus' life. We're told that somehow that Joseph was a carpenter. His, his father, Joseph, Master says, Jesus' father, Joseph, and then there's a little parenthesis. I love this. Whether in a human or a divine way, close parentheses, you know, this is... And I said, Swami, what does this parenthetical remark, you know, the whole, like, immaculate conception of Jesus and, you know, all of this, that conceived of a virgin and all of this by the Holy Spirit. I said, what, what does this parenthetical remark mean here where Jesus is parentage, you know, is it Joseph? Who was his father? And Swami smiled at me and I said, and that's all that's mentioned in the whole commentary. Swami smiled and said, there were some things even Master wouldn't touch, is how he put it, you know. He hints, but he just goes on from that. And, you know, you have all, you have, you have the virgin birth of Jesus and immaculate conception, believe it or not, does not actually apply to Jesus. It applies to Mary. They back it up so that even Mary was conceived somehow immaculately, so nobody is touched by the physicality of sexual intercourse. I said to Swami again, why do they have all this? And then Swami, in reference to the virgin birth of Jesus and the immaculate conception of Mary, this is Swami's words. So people would have two reasons not to believe instead of just one. <laughs> That's how he put it. However, what happens is, and, I'll, and now I will respect it, I, I read this an, by an author who was writing about Ramakrishna, and I thought it was profound in a very interesting way. He said, sometimes legend tells the story more truly than fact does. And isn't that an interesting way to put it? 
that, that people cannot convey the greatness of what they have experienced by keeping it in a factual way. So they create legends which are in a way more true than the facts because they take you beyond the ordinary way of thinking. And ever since I heard that, I love all these stories, you know, all the Krishna stories, all the Jesus stories, because in a way they are more true because they lift us from the mundane into another dimension. So it really, none of this really makes a difference in the long run because what matters is our communion. And these stories are beautiful. We act them out. St. Francis created a whole... St. Francis was the one who began to create the pageantry of the devotion to the baby Jesus. All of that started with Francis. Isn't that interesting? And in, in our temple on Christmas Eve, we have a huge Christmas Eve, and we act it all out. And we, you know, we have a little beautiful uh, bambino that we got from Italy, a little baby Jesus beautifully painted, and it's all of that. It's all just, I love it. I love every tiny bit of it, you know? And the miraculous nature makes it more true to life in a peculiar way. So anyway, these masters come to pay homage to Jesus in the, in the uh, manger like that. And I've been at that spot. Master, uh, Master was at, at that spot. In 1935, Master went to Jerusalem. And he authenticated it. He said that is the spot. He authenticated most of the traditional pilgrimage places in Israel. It's very interesting. He said almost all of them are authentic and some of the most marvelous ones like this one. So that happens. And then Jesus has his life. We believe that Joseph is a carpenter. He's growing up here. Now, according to the Essene tradition, you know, it wasn't Joseph wasn't just sitting around making furniture or whatever he was doing. And Jesus was being carefully trained by divinely enlightened teachers because he, he, was a, 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 he was an avatar. He came in with that consciousness. He had this mission. They knew what his mission was. They were preparing him for it. Simultaneously, there's family life going on. You know, even Master had a family life. Even Master, his family tried to marry him off several different times. You know, they, they tried to arrange weddings for him and Master tells in autobiography you know they, they had a wedding all arranged to the point where the food was ordered before anybody told Master about it and then he tells the story about how he substituted his cousin for himself because he said to his family you're just annoyed because you're not going to get the wedding feast so I'm going to get him to marry the girl and you'll all be satisfied so even in an avatar's life the family doesn't necessarily support him so here's the story of Jesus, and, w and we have just a few incidences of his childhood, but at the age of 12, they all go to Jerusalem for the Passover, because this is what you did there. You went to the big temple for this big holiday. So this huge uh, entourage of Jesus and his extended family, or his village, or whatever it is, they all go there. Then they live some distance away, so they're leaving, and they're like a day and a half on the road back to their home, before they gradually sort out that Jesus is not with them. And they all get a little panicky, especially his mother and his father. They get very panicky. They rush back to Jerusalem. They find Jesus. There's this tradition in Judaism where in the temple, at that time, in the temple, various rabbis would speak, and they would debate, and they would debate with their students, and they would offer teachings. They come to the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus is 12. And he's just sitting there, and he's just teaching in the temple. 
He's, he's just holding forth. And his parents are frantic to see him. And he looks at them and he's completely puzzled. Like, why are you looking for me? And he says, don't you know I must be about my father's business? You know, and my father, of course, is God. That's how it was referred to. Why are you acting as if I belong to you? Why are you thinking that I would go back into your life? Now, that's the last story that's told in the Bible until Jesus reappears uh, 18 years later, like this. Now, what Master actually says, I mean, he says several things, but he says that his family began to make plans to marry him to arrange for a bride for him. So Jesus left and went to India. <laughs> I, I have no way of gauging that, but it's, it's a remarkably human thing to say. So what, what Master says is those missing 18 years of Jesus' life, and now this is becoming, it's fascinating. Like in 1970, nobody was talking about this. But now, you know, not quite 50 years later, everybody's talking about this. And that Jesus just came to India. Because, as, as Master put it, he was returning the visit of the wise man. So he came back to see Babaji Lahiri and Sri Yukteswar, we presume. And there are, as you all know, there are many documents showing that he was here. So Jesus was here for 18 years. And he did not only sit at the feet of the Masters. And the traditions are that he was in Varanasi, that he was in Puri, and that he was also in the High Himalayas. And when I really started reading this, and this is where Abbot George's story comes in, it's very interesting, I said to Swami, Swamiji, Jesus was in Jerusalem for three and a half years. He was in India for 18 years. So interestingly, he had more of a mission in India than he actually had in the West. Because according to this tradition, he traveled around. They say he argued with the priests in Puri, over their narrow-minded interpretations of things, and he tried to get them more broadly. Jesus walking around India would have been recognized as an avatar because the tradition of this country, you know what you're looking at when you see it. He would have behaved as such a teacher, and he was a disciple of the great Himalayan masters. Now, there's not very much known about those years because it was so long ago, there are certain traditions in India. Some of them are more true than others. Who knows? But nonetheless, that's that's what's said. But then... I just want to add something here, uh, which I got to know. So there is one Nath tradition in India. And in Nath tradition, there is mention of Ishanath, which is at the same time as right. Jesus. And it is believed that Ishanath was Jesus right. in India at that point. There are, many, there are many traditions that confirm this. And it's exactly true. And Master confirmed it, so there it is. And it's fascinating to see these details come out and make it more exact. And according to Abbot George, it's in the, it's in the basement of the Vatican, too, as, as I'll explain in, in just a moment. So at a certain point, Jesus was the avatar to the Jewish people. You know, even though he had this mission to India and planted many seeds, and I want to talk in a few minutes more about that, he was, he was born for the Jewish people. So at a certain point, he had to go back. He had this, he had this destiny that was God-inspired by all these gurus with this very, very long-range view of how the spiritual evolution and teaching of a planet takes place. So at a certain point, he was drawn back, 
And now in the Bible, he just shows up again. And what, the way um, Abbot George describes this, and Swamiji has talked about this often, um, at a certain point, those 18 years, self-evidently, they were taken out of the Bible. Because it is impossible to imagine that when he comes back after 18 years, he never told anybody where he was. It's also very unlikely, or at least let me phrase it differently, it's quite possible that many of his disciples went with him or joined him over there. You know, there was, there's no reason why this would have just been this incredible separation. But the tradition is, and there are historic records of this, and you just I can't tell you exactly, but there are. You know, that there was there were debates years later, you know, much later. There were debates because the theology of who Jesus was was becoming more and more confused. Because there was no tradition, as there is in the East, of avatars returning time and time again. And there was no tradition to understand what it means to be the son of God or, or anything like that. This was all like being dropped into a, a, an ignorant sphere or without a tradition. No, let me phrase it differently. The tradition was there, but we're in Kali Yuga descending. So true knowledge is being more and more lost. The Essenes had kept it alive, but it's being more and more lost. So as we get way down into Kali Yuga descending and the church begins to take over, they have to make, what they start doing is they try to make Jesus unique. And they have no explanation and no uh, inherent understanding anymore of who he really was. So they just have to make him more and more the only one that there ever was. So it gets very difficult to have him go somewhere and learn from somebody. Because how can the only son of God learn from anyone? Who would teach him? And since they don't know anything else, they just decide that, that they just can't have this weird aberration in the middle of the story. So they pull it out. Because this is what religious authorities do. If something doesn't, if something doesn't meet their criteria... You know, one of the reasons that Ananda published the original autobiography of a yogi is because over many years, and I, you know, I hate to have to be the one to say this, but the institution founded in Master's name began to change words in the autobiography that did not suit the theology that they were developing. Master said, you know, I cannot teach you Kriya Yoga here in this book. You must learn it from a qualified Kriyaban. And the 12th or 13th edition published by the organization Master Founded said, you must, and I'm paraphrasing, but you must learn Kriya from an authorized self-realization fellowship or YSS uh, authorized teacher. But Master didn't say that. Master said a qualified Kriyaban. But they had come to the position where the definition of a qualified Kriyaban with someone who was associated with their organization. So they put those words into master's mouth, basically. And, you know, just inch by inch, these things happen. And so at a certain point, it just it didn't fit their theological interpretation for Jesus to have gone to India and studied with anyone. So they took it out. But as Swamiji said, if, if they hadn't removed, but they had the nerve to remove it, but nobody had the nerve to create a life for him. So it doesn't even say 
he became an apprentice carpenter in his father's shop. That's what people have added in, but there's not a word in the Bible. So Jesus just shows up again, you know, when he's 30 years old, actually, and until he's 33 when he's, when he's killed. And, but he comes, he comes to get his disciples and to train them because that's the purpose of a master, and to train his disciples so that on this side of the planet, even though, you know, the Israel is actually sort of the Mideast, it's not the West, but that in on this direction, this will take place, and he needs to train disciples who can do that. And also Jesus knows that he has this, this extraordinary um, drama that he has to play out. And Swami mentions this many times, that in many ways the teachings of Jesus was his life. This is Kali Yuga going down and something really dramatic had to be done in order to get the attention of everyone. So Jesus comes and he starts collecting his disciples. That's that's what the story is. They see him, they follow him. Follow me. Follow me. And, And he gathers these. And then there's this dual reality that he lives at this point which is, on one hand, there's this Jerusalem scene with this powerful priesthood, and he's, he's challenging their grip on Sanat, on Judaism at that point. And on the other hand are his disciples, mostly, not all men, men and women, to whom he's teaching the joy of living for God. And they're so joyous and they're so happy. That takes place up at the Sea of Galilee. And even today, the Sea of Galilee is as much as it was then. It's not pristine, but it's still somewhat rural and not so developed. And you can go into the hills there, and you can go on the, the lake, and you can go to the various places where he was. And you can just see that they had this very simple, happy life. When you hear Swami's oratorio, he talks about, he, he, he gathered round his chosen few there together, um, within the joy of God, you know, their life was simple. They all they didn't need anything, and they lived joyously with Him. And you walk in those places, and you feel the wonderful freedom of these young people, you know, f- getting this glorious message of freedom. Then you go to the Jerusalem side, and every time Jesus goes into Jerusalem, He gets in big arguments with all the priests, and they're threatening Him, and He goes into the temple and he takes his whip and he drives all the money changers out of the the temple. I mean, these are huge things. I mean, he takes a whip and drives these people out of the temple. He upsets their tables because they've turned my Lord's house, my father's house, into a marketplace because you have to make these offerings and the only place you can get the appropriate offerings is from the temple and the prices are set and you have to pay them. You know, so there's just money and power, money and power. And Jesus just stands against it like this. And so the whole small community of Judaism just begins to roil because there are all these prophecies that a Messiah will come. The whole of Judaism is based on the fact that there is a promised Messiah. And so now there is this force. Is he the Messiah? Is he not the Messiah? Does he match the prophecies? Does he not match the prophecies? You know, is he a fake? Is he for real? And Jesus, and then Jesus uh, confounds them continuously and, and teaches. He teaches from their own scripture. He knows their scriptures, but he keeps reinterpreting it in different ways. And 
the people, the power and money priesthood recognizes the threat. And then the people who are devoted to Jesus, you know, they, they know who he is, but they're also very confused about what's going on here. And he speaks about the king and his kingdom and all this power that's going to come in. And many of them think that it's going to be in this world. And also, just to make it even more confusing, the Jews are an oppressed people. They're not free. They're allowed to live, but the Romans are really in charge, and the Roman authority has authority over them, and many of the Jewish people chafe under this. They want to be free. They want to have more power. So some of them think that Jesus is going to come to give back that kind of power. And all of these different things are playing against each other. And, and then Jesus will go into Jerusalem and roil everyone up and have these big experiences. And then he just takes his people back to the Sea of Galilee. And then there they just, you know, he teaches them and they learn the deeper teachings and they all go back to Jerusalem. And it's just, it's quite, it's quite a drama. And he's teaching his disciples Kriya Yoga. He's teaching them the love of God. He's teaching... You know, look at the birds of the field. They, they work, they, nor toil not, and yet our Father clothes them and feeds them. Total renunciation. His, his teachings are exactly what the teachings of India have always been. But he has this other job to do. And ultimately, of course, you know, it, it, it really all starts coming to a head, and it comes marvelously to a head when Lazarus dies. Lazarus is the brother of Martha and Mary, who are two great disciples of his, and Lazarus. They're a family of three. Lazarus gets sick. Jesus is far away, or farther, not not there with them. They lived right near Jerusalem. Jesus is away. They send word. Lazarus is very sick. Lord, come. You must come and, and cure him, because Jesus has done many things like this. Jesus does not go. Why would Jesus not go to save his sick disciple? And finally, Jesus, um, they hear that Lazarus has died, and only after Lazarus has died does Jesus go. Jesus arrives. Mary comes rushing out. Lord, Lord, my brother has died. If only you had been here, you would have saved him from death. And then Jesus goes, takes them, they all go together, to the cave where the body of Lazarus has been placed. And there's a big stone over the cave. This is how people were buried in that, er- that area. And Jesus says to the sisters, remove the stone. And then the Bible is so graphic. Someone says, Lord, he's been dead for several days. And it actually, in the, the translation I have said, he stinketh. It says, <laughs> you know, it's just going to be horrible. It's a hot climate. He's, we've got a dead body in there. We're going to roll this back. It's going to be really ghastly. Jesus says, roll it back. So they do. So they roll back the stone, and then Jesus calls to Lazarus. And Now, this is right near Jerusalem. This family is well known. Many people have come to, to bury Lazarus, to mourn with the sisters. They've been, they've been doing the whole ritual of someone dying, and it's a huge thing. Jesus says, Lazarus? And Lazarus, wrapped up in the winding sheets, you know, comes staggering out of the cave like this. And a whole lot of people see it because they've all come there to, to, to be with Martha and Mary. 
So then Lazarus just comes and he resumes his place in the family. And so now lots of people are coming to see that Lazarus is really there because they had seen Lazarus dead and now they're seeing Lazarus alive. And this is sort of the last straw because now the priests can no longer deny what Jesus has done and they become very, very nervous and they start talking that we're not only going to have to kill Jesus, we're going to have to kill Lazarus because as long as Lazarus is walking around, people are going to still believe in him. So then it becomes very intent. And, you know, I don't have time to finish the whole story, and you all know what happens. You know, the end of the story is that eventually the final confrontation happens. But what is also interesting, you see, is when that final confrontation happens, no one expects that Jesus is actually going to die. They assume that when the final confrontation comes, Jesus will declare himself. And when he actually instead dies on the cross, it, it terrifies them all. And only Mary, Mary his mother, Mary Magdalene, and John actually were able to stand there and watch him die. Everyone else has run away. But the night that Jesus dies, they all come back together. You know, and then they're all, then they're all with each other because they did believe, but they just became frightened. They didn't know what to do. So then Jesus does die, and it's, they're just, everybody is crushed. And they put him in the tomb and all of that. But, you know, three days later, he's resurrected. And for 40 days, Jesus keeps reappearing. And he doesn't just sort of flash like that. He's walking on the beach. He's cooking breakfast with people. He's discussing with them. It's like he died. Everybody saw him die. His body was put into the tomb. And then he's just there again. Just like in Autobiography of a Yogi, when Sri Yukteswar reappears, and Master goes to great length to explain to us that he knelt at his feet and saw the canvas shoes and felt his toes. Because he wants us to understand that this wasn't a vision. Sri Yukteswar simply put his body back together again. And Sri Yukteswar said, you see this as a physical body. I see it just as, you know, a pattern of light. But that was precisely what Jesus did for 40 days until finally his his time was up and there's a place in Jerusalem which Master says is authentic which is the place from which Jesus ascended into heaven for the last time and there's actually a kind of indentation in the rock which is said to be the footprints of Jesus that particular shrine happens to be in Palestinian territories or, or else it's under the control of non-Christians. So it's a very, very casual, it's a very nice little chapel, but it's all very casual. And then there's just this sort of square on the ground with this rock in the middle. And you, you, you pay, I've started to say rubles, shekels, that's what you pay. You pay five shekels and you can go in there and, you know, be in this spot that Master said is the spot from which Jesus was, resur- was uh, ascended. Now, here's, here's, here's more according to what I believe is valid tradition. After it was finished and all, the, all Jesus was gone, the disciples had to get together and decide what they were going to do. And interestingly, they all had to decide what they wanted. But Thomas, one of Jesus' disciples, he wasn't part of those discussions because he already had his assignment. 
And Jesus' assignment to him was that he was to go back to India. Now, in my mind, I think, was that Swami Kriyananda? You know, because Swami Kriyananda always had his assignment, and it was different than the other disciples. So immediately after Jesus' time was passed, Thomas came to India. And he came to the south of India, and he brought... But he didn't really bring the message of Jesus to India, as people think. He just came as the disciple of Jesus. Maybe he'd even been here with Jesus before. And he just continued the work that Jesus had already started. And according to the, this, the valid historic tradition, Jesus became a very um, well-recognized and respected avatar and the whole teaching of Jesus in India was Sanatana Dharma. Why would it not have been? Because that's what it was. And that tradition, the, the Sanatana Dharma tradition of Jesus' teachings, lasted in India until the Portuguese came. And then the Europeans came with, with the Catholic Church, with, with a certain thing of Christianity, and were horrified to see that there was this heretical teaching being offered in the name of Jesus that was just completely heathen as far as they were concerned. And so there's this whole historical story about how those missionaries and merchants gathered all the documents that were related to Thomas's true teaching, gathered them and burned them, and then rewrote history so that everything that was ever taught about Jesus matched what was being taught at that time. Now, I mean, these are fantastic stories, aren't they? You know, just like amazing truths, and they are truths, that now that Kali Yuga descending has passed, and we're beginning to come up on the other side, and we're coming into Dwapara, when East and West unite, and when, when all of this sectarian fragmentation this opposition, this so-called religion that is really just war and ignorance, is going to be obliterated. All these different understandings of even of who Jesus was, because this is the great dichotomy in our world at this time. I mean, there are other fanatics, but the fanatical form of Christianity, which does not allow any other truth, because he was the only son of God and you're saved by Jesus and if you're not, you're damned to hell, which makes it impossible for you know anybody else to be a Christian. All of that has to be taken away. And it can be taken away by great souls asserting, but it's also being taken away by this, everybody seems to know now that Jesus was in India. I saw a children's book published by a Catholic publisher which was all about Jesus sailing all around the world and visiting all these great holy men, including into India. I think somebody published it without reading it was the only thing I could figure out. But it was a great children's book. And there it was on a, on, in a Catholic bookstore. So that everybody's beginning to realize this is not what it seems. You know, that there's, there's something completely other. And this is Master. Master called his teaching the second coming of Christ and said his, his uh, commission from Babaji was to restore the original teachings of Krishna, the original teachings of Jesus, and to show that they are one. You know, this is the painting that Swami commissioned because he needed to find a way to, to say 
in a way that everyone in India could understand. Ah, oh, that's why Jesus is in the center of the altar. So that none of us would get confused as to whether we were talking Christianity or Christianity. So he put Krishna, as Master sometimes spelled it, and Krishna and Christ all together. So we would see that. Now, all of us, you know, who have stepped outside of the orthodox traditions of the cultures in which we were raised, in order to go to the source of those traditions, we have both the opportunity and the responsibility to really elevate our minds from the obvious and be able to embrace the mission that our Master has set up for us, which is that we need to transcend all of these different realities and become true apostles, you know, of of true religion. Many of you know, of course, that some of us are going to be going to Israel from here, a large group from here. When I was in Israel in November, I, I used to lead pilgrimages to India. For I did it about 12 times with, with several other leaders. I know what it is to lead a pilgrimage. When I was on pilgrimage in November with a group from Italy, every day I said, I'm so happy I'm not leading this pilgrimage. It's so much fun not to be in charge. So I was quite dismayed halfway through... <laughs> when I felt God whisper in my ear, you need to bring a group from India to Israel because we need to do the east-west from the other side. We need to, to bring the whole Indian idea over to Israel so they can understand from experience who Jesus really is. I called Daya or I emailed Daya. She had the same idea on the same day that we just felt that this is really what God was calling us to do. And given that I myself have always had, from, from the time I was sitting in my trailer reading this, this tremendous um, involvement, is the only way I can put it, with the life of Christ, and this feeling about the power of Jesus on our path in a way that we, we ourselves haven't yet understood. Swami's Oratorio, which he wrote in the eight, in 1980s, was sort of the first time we had what I would call a self-realization way to relate to Jesus. Because in the West, we're just so trapped by the conditioning that we have that it was very hard to break out of um, all of those falsenesses. But um, I, I remember speaking to Swamiji at one point, and I was saying, you know, sir, all of us in the West have had to kind of get our our minds around this, this Eastern way of, of thinking and being, I said, it's just as important for the people in India, isn't it, to get over whatever prejudice they might have against Christianity and be able to see it for what it really is. And so I just said, oh, yes, of course. And that's always been in my mind because most of us who are American on this path have so many Indian samskars that we just embrace the Indian way of, of being effortlessly. But because Christianity and so much of the Western misuse of Christianity has been used to oppress other cultures, there's a kind of, there may be, a kind of resistance to it that also has to be overcome so that we can all be the ambassadors of that true teaching because otherwise how is that really going to come about? And it isn't enough merely to respect each other or not hate each other. <laughs> you know, what we have to actually have to understand is we have to unify. And also, the, the life and presence of Jesus 
um, which is powerful in, in Israel. That's why when I, when I first came to India, um, Master lived in the West, and it's possible to go. In fact, he lived longer in the West. It's possible to go to Los Angeles and visit the places he visited and, and feel his living vibration where he put it. But, of course, none of the other gurus came to America in physical form. So the, when I came to India for the first time in 86 and then came several subsequent years, we went to Puri and meditated in the Mandir where Sri Yukteswar is buried, which remains one of my favorite places in the world. At that time, you could get into Lahiri's house in Varanasi because one of his great-grandsons or great-great-grandsons was still living and the house was open. So we would go into that house. He was still, he was very uh, narrow-minded and he had all these rules about what you could and couldn't do. Uh, Somewhere Lahiri said that you should meditate in private so he wouldn't let us meditate anywhere on the property. He wouldn't even let you stand up and close your eyes if he saw you. I have to finish this. So at one point, there were three of us who were tour leaders, and we developed a strategy, which we could, we could sort of figure out the line of sight around the house and in the patio, and we'd gradually sort of work him over into a corner. Then we'd surround him and start asking him all these questions and letting him hold forth, thus blocking the view to a large extent, of what was going on elsewhere in the area. And that allowed some of our people to at least close their eyes for a moment. <laughs> you know, he, he was a little wise to us, too, and every so often he'd sort of try to see us. But So anyway, we were able to visit Lahiri's shrine inside, which I, is now hard to do. Um, and then we also went up to the Himalayas. We actually flew in an airplane over the Himalayas and went up. We didn't go into the mountains, but we went where we could see the high mountains. Where would we have gone? We went to Kathmandu. We went all the way into Nepal. So I came home, and then in my role at Ananda, I would often do an arati in front of the masters. It was fascinating to me, because I'd been looking at the pictures of these masters already for 15, almost 20 years, that when I looked at Lahiri, I felt his consciousness in an entirely different way. When I looked at Sri Yukteswar, and even when I looked at Babaji. And I realized I was remembering. I was remembering that touch. And, you know, the thing about Ananda, which is fascinating, which is, the only way I can put it is we're kind of all on one nerve wire. So there's, there's such a, because we meditate together and because we attune to the same masters, it's like we all, what happens to one of us happens to all of us in a very real sense. So even if 15 people do something, that somehow that sets up a vibration that permeates out into the whole reality of things. So it has occurred to me that if we could start even more dynamically than presently exists, a real experience of the East coming to the West, not just, not just coming to Los Angeles and to Ananda Village, but as long as the world allows us, as long as the world holds together and doesn't explode in some horrible conflagration, to, to put ourselves in the presence of Jesus and then carry that energy back. And then it's not only that people have that experience, but they have the seed of that experience which begins to grow and then we share that. And then even if most of you have not actually had the experience, the living experience in the hearts of a few begin to create it for everyone. And the realization that we can expand our understanding. You know, we, 
we have this very unusual reality, which was we have a line of gurus. And most people, m- most people dedicate themselves to master. In the West, some people who are dedicated to Jesus take discipleship to, ma- to Jesus through master. It's just, that's just the way they feel about it. But Babaji, Sri Yukteswar, Lahiri, we have this whole line of gurus, and Jesus is the beginning. This whole, this whole path started because of him. And so what it is, quite simply, is it's this enormous wealth of spiritual potential that all of us have. And this, I mean, I don't mean to put this lightly, but this enormously entertaining possibility of just opening ourselves in countless ways. I, I used to sleep in when my little trailer. I had a little bed like this that was under a, a window, and it was under the shelf, and I had all the masters set up there. And one night... I have no idea how it happened. In the middle of the night, the picture of Babaji flipped off the shelf and landed on my chest just like this. And I really felt, oh, I guess I have to pay more attention to Babaji for a little while. <laughs> you know, but then it became something that was part of my reality. Or you tune into Lahiri. And Jesus had such a rich and fascinating, extraordinary incarnation with so many dimensions to it. That is just like one more, one more possibility for all of us to have. In, in our community, um, every year for Guru Purnima, which is not usually on the exact day, but close to it, we do what we call a Guru Day retreat. And we now have shrines to each of the master built in the courtyard of our community. And we go from shrine to shrine. And I, it, usually it's I. I talk about what each master has to give us. We've been doing this for 25 years. And you can actually go online and you'll find somewhere some of these. But it's just been for me and for us each time to just stop for a moment and think, what does this master have to give me? And, and in, in what particular time, at what particular need, what particular vibration can this master give us? And what happens when we do that is we realize the possibilities of attunement just get wider and wider. And the possibility of being a channel get wider and wider. And, um, well, it's really, let me, let me think how to say it. It's an opportunity not to be missed. You know, however one takes it. I'm not just talking about pilgrimage. I'm just talking about asking Jesus, as we ask all the other gurus, you know, inspire me, show me, help me understand who you are, and help me accept into my heart whatever it is that I can receive so that I can become as you are, be therefore perfect as our Father in Heaven is perfect, if I can be the Son of God and live in the light as you did. So, thank you all. <laughs>